This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Microphone check one, two. What is this? The five-foot assessment with the roughneck business. Nice. I have no idea what's happening. Hello, welcome to The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined by my coworkers Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. You seem uncertain about that. Um, yeah, well, we, you know, it's, knows it's hard to know what's America's really No, like. we're all in a room together, so I, I know exactly what's happening. Um, <laughs> we were even discussing this. We are wearing headphones for no reason. Um, no, we look like professional podcasters yes. when we wear the headphones. That's dress for the job you want, it not does. the job you have. <laughs> it seems more technical <laughs> this way. Um, we have been lazy over the past week and did not read a white paper of the week. We've been busy. I would say we've been busy. I don't think we... If you look at the site, we've all been busy. It's a new populist era. Maybe you've been lazy. People are through with experts. <laughs> whatever. So it's the new format. Um, no, no, we'll get back on track. But uh, we, we want to talk about two things uh, that, that are that are going on this week. We, we want to talk about sort of the big picture on, on infrastructure. Um, Which I'm excited about. Infrastructure. It's going to make America great again. It's... Great. I have a lot of uh, opinions about this. Um, but oh, that'll make it different than first, normal things we talk. <laughs> we Good should talk about, <laughs> about these gag orders that are panicking people. Sure. So we're talking here about the news that I, I've, that the Trump administration has basically told a bunch of the federal agencies, stop communicating with the public. Yes. People are freaking out. EPA specifically. E- e- EPA was, I think, the first one and in some ways the most drastic because they mm-hmm. also told them to put a halt to their grant making. Right. Which I think we should sort of put a pin in yep, and, that's a different and, and talk about later. But a bunch of other ones. I think HHS. Well, I think w- one thing that's been a little confusing to me is um, I don't think we understand how widespread this is right. right now. And I think um, – I read some headlines yesterday I found very confusing. So there was a headline in the Huffington Post that some sub-agencies at HHS have said that they've gotten some kind of communication about halting or stopping um, communication with the public. You know, I reached out to the agencies that run Obamacare. I reached out to Center for Medicare and Medicare Medicaid Services. They said they've gotten no memo. Like, if you look at the healthcare.gov Twitter account, it is happily tweeting about how great Obamacare it, it's is. It's sassy. It's a sassy it's, Twitter account right now. It's doing some things out there. So I, I think one of the things that's hard to know right now is um, how exactly widespread this is. It's helpful to remember the federal government is a massive, sprawling thing. And it sounds like if one sub-agency at HHS has gotten that guidance, other ones that run more controversial programs haven't. So I would say at this point, we don't actually know the extent of how, yeah. how, how far these communications go, who's gotten them, like what actually they Ag- mandate, which Ag- is hard to report around. Agriculture seems like it was one. It should be said, one challenge in reporting is that apart from any question of like bans that, that may or may not be in place, like I tried to call HUD Public Affairs the other day to clarify something and there was just nobody there, mm-hmm. um, which I don't think is because they've been like put under some interdict. It's just like the different agencies are set up differently. And I guess there was no like career person staffing that desk. Or possibly the career person, as many have right now, has left. And they right. Replaced right. Them. Or they quit or yeah. I mean, or just has a lot to do in a transition period and like has not gotten back to <laughs> right, you. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, the that also seems plausible. <laughs> no, no, no. But there was like nothing. No, like no mess. You know what I mean? Just right. No voicemail. Yeah. It's just like death. So I, I think it's worth <laughs> talking about this from a couple of different angles. And, and one is that the Trump administration has come into and we discussed this a bit around our, our discussion of bureaucracy last week. The Trump administration is coming into a challenging situation relating to the federal government, which is that virtually every aspect of the federal government and the majority of people who work in it don't like them. And they also have not yet put in place the vast majority of their leadership team. They are doing a much slower appointment process and we have seen from recent presidents. Uh, this number is going to be a little bit out of date, but as of uh, mid last week, they had 27 of 670 presidential appointments uh, even just named. And that was slower than the pace we had been seeing from President Obama, from President Bush, from President Clinton at, at this point in the presidencies. So it would actually not be surprising given the combination of a federal bureaucracy that has 
in many cases very different priorities than they do, that in many cases is staffed by people who are seem to be subtweeting them. A lot of the agencies, we should say, have been, you know, sending out tweets about uh, which I'm in sympathy with, but how great immigrants are, how great Obamacare is. Some of this seems like it's a little bit aimed at the at the incoming administration. And very timed to the executive very orders, to the executive too. Orders. Like, it seems like it's like a very clear it, – it's not just they scheduled these tweets during the Obama administration. So the it's mixture like of, of not having your staff in place in these in these uh, agencies and having hostile people <laughs> staffing these agencies, it would not be shocking to me if the Trump administration put a pause on – public communications so they can kind of get things straightened out. And while it is upsetting to people, I also don't think it is the craziest thing in the <laughs> world. Um, as Matt was saying before the show, I think the thing we would have to see is what happened going forward, right? Are we seeing a, a real drawdown in public communication entirely in the government? Or are we seeing a somewhat chaotic transition from a somewhat unprepared team dealing with a somewhat hostile bureaucracy? Right. I mean, because, for example, if you said to the EPA, hey, guys, we don't have a new administrator confirmed yet. Soon we will. We have every reason to believe this, like, is not going to be a problem. Like, he's got the votes. He's going to come in as the secretary. He's going to hire some subordinates. He and his team are going to have some discussions with you about, like, how does the EPA Twitter account work? What is your process for sending out press releases? And then once we all understand like, what's going on? Things are going to go – either they're going to go back to normal or they're going to go back to a slightly different process that the new leadership team puts in place. But until we can have those meetings, just everybody go dark. That's like one thing, which is like we are trying to manage a transition and it's not quite seamless. Another thing is in the new Trump EPA, no EPA scientists can communicate with the public at all about anything forever. That latter one, it seems to me, is the story that people have written, and it's consistent, I guess, with the text of the memo that was sent out because the memo, at least what, what I saw quoted from it, was very brief and did not like have a lot of explanation and, and context and, and so on and so forth. Um, but you really will have to see. I mean, I, I feel like if four months from now the story is – EPA scientists have been told they can't answer questions from journalists about their work. Uh, they cannot release any papers or studies. Then you have a real story, you know, a, a disturbing story. I think we would have to ask some questions about what the legalities and, and so on and so forth are. But, you know, you would say they're completely subverting, like, the mission of government agencies and they're doing it without – any kind of like proper, you know, new legislation, real debate, things like that. So people have to talk about. But if we're just saying, look, they're trying to get a handle on like the communications team. So like one, one example we had, right, was the um, Badlands National Park Twitter account started tweeting out facts about climate change. Um, and it's clever, right? Because say you fire someone for tweeting accurate information about climate change. Well, you know, then it's like you're the asshole, right? Like everything they tweeted was true. It wasn't like weird political slanders against Donald Trump. It was just like facts about carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere. At the same time, like an administration is entitled to control like the public facing communications that come out of its agencies. If Donald Trump doesn't want to talk about rising atmospheric carbon dioxide, it seems like I don't want to say it's appropriate because it's stupid, but like it's within the realm of the kinds of choices you want the president to make. Um, and people are – they're having fun with this because I assume most people who have these social media gigs, even if they aren't Obama-era political appointees, there wasn't like a designated Department of Defense tweeter when George W. Bush was president. This will have been a new position that was created during the Obama administration, is probably staffed by a young, relatively liberal person who was like excited about the possibility of using Twitter to make things uh, good and, you know, doesn't like Donald Trump. And uh, the, the Defense Department was really screwing with them. Like this morning when Trump rolled out his executive order banning refugees, uh, they do a tweet from refugee to Marine, USMC Corporal Ali J. Muhammad takes the fight to the doorstep of those who cast his family out. And like, that's a great tweet, but like, that's clearly like counter messaging the new president. So one thing I want to add to um, 
what Matt was saying about how kind of the long-term picture looks. I think it's helpful to actually understand what it's generally like when journalists interact with scientists at agencies, with folks who do research. It is not typically an especially open process, I've at least found in the Obama administration. It it is typically not the case that, um, for example, I write about a lot of research that comes out of HHS, that comes out of CDC. I will often email the author saying, hey, I have a question about their research. It would say nine times out of 10, they refer me to the communications office. It is not the case that in the Obama administration, Mm -hmm. it was just this free flow of information between scientists and journalists, the um, administration, and, you know, understandably so, but like frustratingly so to me as a journalist, they either wanted to take my questions to the scientists, they wanted to set up the call, sometimes they didn't want me to talk to them at all. Um, I would say in general, you know, when there was like a particular person I had questions for, The agencies were pretty good at putting me on the phone, but it was all very monitored and very going through official channels. Um, So if we end up in a situation where, you know, I can't freely email scientists and they don't feel like they can um, email me back if they say, actually, I have to refer you to our communications office, like that would not surprise me. That's kind of the standard of where we are. And even though it frustrates me as a journalist, I also understand it from an administrative point of view. Um, so I think that's just some helpful context for understanding how things have worked, you know, under the Obama administration. I think one thing that would actually be even more worrying to me than like a lack of communication saying no more reports is a lot of like alternative fact reports. Like I am very nervous and there's a great piece. Um, our colleague Alvin Chang wrote about this. I am very nervous about what kind of data comes out of the Trump administration, given what we saw in this, like, really silly fight about crowd size, which is a fight you can at least adjudicate with pictures and facts. And like you can see the pictures of the mall and who is there. But there are a lot of things you can't adjudicate with pictures. You can't adjudicate unemployment numbers or the people who signed up for Obamacare or climate change figures. There's so much that is so much more abstract. And actually, like what I would be way more worried about than no communication is like getting a report from HHS today saying like, you know, Premiums of spy are going to spike fifty percent in twenty seventeen, or getting like some reports that seemed very different from the data we've seen so far, and that almost seems like a harder position to be in than the no data is trying to understand kind of data that that you can't that that is more abstract that you don't have access to the original information and you're kind of trying to like make heads or tails of whatever reports are being put out. Yes, I believe that we are going to look back with incredible fondness on this brief period of the worst thing happening in public communications from the Trump administration was they were telling people not to publicly communicate. The you brought up the crowd size dispute, which is is a good example. But the other is that Sean Spicer was asked at his first normal press briefing whether Donald Trump believes the unemployment rate, because Trump has had a tendency over the past couple of years to say the real unemployment rate is 42 percent, which is it is not 42 percent. It is not. He there is a complicated way he's getting to this by counting a lot of people who do not want to be working. But it's just not two in the weeds for the weeds, not what the unemployment rate is. We rely on the government to produce a tremendous amount of the factual basis of our discussions and debates and policymaking. We rely on it uh, to a large extent for, as you mentioned, uninsurance numbers. But a ton of the economic data is produced by different government agencies. Uh, a lot of it comes out of the, the Bureau of Economic Analysis. A lot of it comes out of the Bureau of Labor Statistics. These things can be tilted. Um, they can be shut down. They can have unscrupulous people put in charge of them. They can change what they report or how they report it to to offer a misleading picture. And then there's the analysis that comes out of the, of the government. You were talking earlier, Matt, about the climate change scientists and what they can and can't tell the public. Well, we're going to have an administration that pretty avowedly does not believe in climate change. And what kinds of analysis and so forth they're going to put forward is going to be really interesting. And one of the few counterbalances, and I think you're seeing it right now, is the one thing they cannot easily do is restock the bureaucracy. They can put their political appointees in charge of everything. But if we have any bulwark, it is that the civil service is stocked with people who are trying to do a good job. And presumably and hopefully, and we've seen this happen at other times, if the Trump administration is out there trying to create a lot of misleading data and misleading impressions of what's going on, that these folks will will 
will stand up and will leak or will otherwise make what what is what needs to be known known. And I, I think that is something you're seeing a little bit right now. I think that if you're the Trump administration, one warning shot that's actually being um, sent in these things like the Badlands tweets is you actually can't trust that the bureaucracy is going to take whatever direction you give them. And as such, you can, you know, you can give them strategic direction. But if you try to get people to do things that they're really, really going to think unethical, it might end up a worse problem for you than than the original problem actually was. I would also say for that reason, though, that if, if anyone is is listening in career staff, I would encourage people to not like blow the doors off on cute stunts. You know, I, I think it makes a lot more sense to like do your job, pay attention to what's happening, take notes, like save your memos if you need to, if if things are getting crazy, surreptitiously record conversations. Send them something. to us. <laughs> but like but but you know, but right, but then like go out with a real story to tell. Not a story like I made some cute subtweets to tweak the president. So my boss got mad at me and then they drummed me out because then all people are going to be able to say is like, well, I I admire your spunk. But like, yeah, you kind of got fired for cause by being insubordinate, which is different from like, okay, we were like putting the unemployment rate together and there was like orders coming on from down high to like misstate the data to make. Right. Like that's a big deal, you know, and like leak or go public or, or whatever, like with a bang over real actual examples of actual misconduct instead of just like preemptive. Like, I think your climate change policies are going to be unconscionable. So I'm going to mess around with you. I, I think it's it's funny. I think like we all appreciated it to an extent, like kudos to Badlands National Park uh, Twitter guy. Um, but there's like a lot of national parks out there. And it's it's more important to like do your work and report on misconduct than to like kid around and create like B-roll material. There's a lot of news happening. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors. Flavors are sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. So you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com slash weeds. One of the other things that kind of worries me a lot about this isn't just like not talking to people, but like not actually collecting the data in the first place. Yep. So one other thing we just talked about is manipulating data or kind of being a little bit different with how you present the data. Another thing I kind of wonder about that I'm curious, you know, how you guys think about it. Another way, you know, an easy way to stop people from talking about data is just not have the data in the first place. So like what facts you even choose to collect in the first place that people could be saying, no, these are being distorted or they could be like leaking to the press. I don't think I have like a great understanding of how much the slowness of bureaucracy does to protect data collection if you just have these systems. And I think like bigger ones are going to be harder to mess with. Like I think it's going to be very hard to stop collecting data on the unemployment rate. Maybe it'll be presented yeah. differently and people, you know, they'll highlight different measures in a way that might be a bit misleading. Um, you know, data on on how many people are signing up through healthcare.gov. Like I don't I don't really know what that data the last um report on open enrollment is now left to the Trump administration. I have no idea, you know, if, if they're going to collect that, if they're going to produce that in the way the administration, the Obama administration had in the past three years. Um, but 
that's something I have a lot of trouble kind of gauging what it might look like. And it seems like arguably a more effective way to suppress, you know, the communication of scientists and researchers with the public would just be not to not have data to communicate about. Well, I'm think- really concerned about this. And, and one way in which I'm concerned about it is that as a value structure, Donald Trump and the core people around him are not abstractly committed to the idea of collecting and believing and working with good data. Trump himself is a conspiracy theorist who believes all kinds of absurd things that aren't true. Um, and you can just like go down lists. He was a, you know, he was one of the very prominent birthers. Mm-hmm. He ran around during the campaign saying based on a grainy photograph he's on the National Enquirer that he believed Ted Cruz's father, Rafael Cruz, was potentially involved in the assassination of John F. Kennedy Jr. He has nominated um, a vaccine skeptic in Robert F. Kennedy Jr., I think it is, mm-hmm. to be head of a, a major vaccine safety panel. There is a lot of things that, and, and Trump himself, by the way, has long, has long been a vaccine vaccine skeptic. He said that global warming is itself a Chinese hoax. There is a lot that Trump has said and believed, which just in, in, in again, in an abstract way, he is not somebody who is committed to finding and believing the best information. That is not true for a lot of other people who run in government, right? And that's true, you know, folks on the left and folks on the right, they often, you know, just believe is a baseline idea that, yeah, you should be collecting good data and then you can make some decisions off of it and maybe you'll come to different ones than I would have wanted you to, but but you at least believe in collecting the data. But the people around Trump also don't buy this. So Steve Bannon, his chief strategist, I would not say Breitbart.com is a website that has evinced a real care with data in its journalism. Um, I don't think they care about that at all. And it's just like not where it comes from. Michael Flynn, uh, his new national security advisor, which is an important data structuring, information structuring position, has retweeted a lot of fake news over the years and just really absurd things. Um, You know, the only person in what appears to be Trump's very close orbit right now who I think does come from a background where good data is prized is Gary Cohn, the, the National Economics Council head who's from Goldman Sachs. But but this is a very scary peace around them. And then it gets even worse because Trump clearly made his press secretary walk out on whatever it was Sunday and lie. There's lie about crowd size. Just like make a total fool of himself about crowd size. Saturday, was it? Yeah, Saturday. Saturday. Yes. Um, you know, and Sean Spicer knew better. He had seen pictures. Uh, and there's an interesting piece by Tyler Cohen about the ways in which authoritarian regimes in other countries, there's interesting studies about this, will make people go out and lie to see who is and isn't loyal to the regime. So you can look at it and see a, a grand strategic purpose in making people do things they would think are unethical or embarrassing because the ones who do do them will have proven their loyalty. And then, then you can call the ones who don't who would be a problem for you later on. But this is this is scary. And and this is a conversation. I just want to say it is the kind of conversation you have in very weak political systems. It is not the kind of conversation I would have expected us to be having in the United States. So I have like a little more confidence on, on most of these things. So one of the blackout members I'm glad to hear that, that, actually. That, that most threw me was that I heard that U.S. Department of Agriculture had been put under the gag order. It was surprising to me because Sarah was talking about uh, the difficulty in speaking directly with uh, researchers at at HHS. Mm -hmm. Um, I am not a big-time agriculture journalist, but I have had occasion to call up uh, some of the researchers and and economists at the Agricultural Research Service every once in a while. They're uh, interesting folks. Um, And it's always been my experience that they are super easy to get on the phone, like their numbers are listed on their papers, uh, nobody cares. It's in part because it's it's not a very partisan, a very political thing. So you can talk to them about why average turkey prices are cheaper in November than than other times, about what's up with uh, eggs. Um, And (laughs) And it's great. And so it seems just like imagining Matt calling. So you think I'm like, hello. Matt's just like, what's up with eggs? <laughs> and the egg scientist is like, well, actually, let me tell you what is up with eggs. They got it. There's a well, there's a there's a good they've got a good poultry economist. At any rate. Um so it seemed like a weird thing to gag. And also like a thing where they do that work not for the purposes of my occasional curiosity about um, weird poultry journalism, um, but because it's important in a practical sense to people in industry to have these facts, right? Like it's a a pleasure of running a grocery chain in the United States as opposed to like Kazakhstan is that you have access to timely and accurate information about what's going on in American agriculture and you can, you know, make some decisions accordingly. Uh, So I saw this morning that this gag organ memo had gone out 
And then like a day later, it had been withdrawn, right? That just, they got some pushback, not like massive, like Democrats were marching, but just people were like, oh no, hey guys, like we actually need ARS to keep producing its reports. So, you know, you got you to gotta do it. And they did. So I think most of the government data that is produced has a constituency that ultimately the constituency for that data's voice will be heard. And I think you can think of the exceptions of that for that. One of the things that, that HUD and the Justice Department do is they collect data and they do investigations related to housing discrimination. Uh, these agencies actually targeted Donald Trump personally back in the 70s in a couple rounds of lawsuits. I think it's pretty clear that like Ben Carson and Jeff Sessions are not going to make this a big priority. And the only constituency for that is civil rights groups, plaintiffs, attorneys, people who the Trump administration is not going to care if it's making them angry. But I think in some ways it was like reassuring that when Sean Spicer was asked, like, what's the unemployment rate, that he came out and was like, this isn't just a number to Donald Trump. That to me was a way of Spicer saying that, like, they are going to just mischaracterize the labor market data if they want to, not like actually stop it from being produced. Like he didn't come out with any kind of methodological critique. He didn't say there was anything wrong with the unemployment rate. He just like said Trump's going to keep ignoring it because I don't know. I I think Trump has reminded us that lying is a pretty good political strategy. Uh, At the same time, having accurate economic data is a pretty good economic policy. And like we can just have both. I don't, country. I don't know if we will, though, because like I think of the health data space that I work in and a lot of it I don't think has like as much of a constituency and I think would actually have like a stronger constituency to mobilize against it. Like I think of there's a survey that the government runs right now, the Youth Risk Behavioral Surveillance Survey, the YRBSS, which mm-hmm. um, I used a few years ago to write a story that I thought was really interesting about how teen behavior is the best behaved in generations. I don't I think that's interesting to public health researchers. I think it's interesting to public health departments. I don't know there's like a strong economic constituency, but I think there is a constituency that doesn't like that data set. And it's probably the folks who make e-cigarettes because it's showing this massive rise in e-cigarette use. So I think for every data set that I think there are constituencies that want data, but there are also powerful ones that would prefer that some data not be out there. And with ones like those, like the survey of teen behavior. It's one where I don't think it's like someone would say, you know, like with healthcare.gov, like, oh, we we should stop collecting that because it's politically unpopular to have this data out there. I think it's just one that like, you know, if you're doing the I think it's run through CDC, like if you're doing the CDC budget and you don't really care that much about data, you say, like, why are we spending a few hundred thousand dollars a year to administer this? And you say, we what's the point of this? particular data set, there's not a strong constituency, and and you kind of like stop collecting it or collect it in a less robust way. So I guess I am less optimistic that the data being collected now, that it has some kind of strong constituent in D.C. that's going to defend it. I think you have this opposite force working for people who don't like what the data is showing and would be happy to see it kind of just fall off the radar. And I would just say, so I think there's some places where there's ideological issues with the data, right? EPA being a great example here. There's a lot of data EPA produces that the Trump administration may not want out there. And then there's political issues with the data being produced, which is to say that there are places where the Trump administration is going to see a driving political interest in certain data not happening or other data being spun in a different way. I think Obamacare is a space here. Economic data, I think, is also an issue here where the Trump administration has a very big interest in being seen as making America great again. And potentially things that suggest America is not being made as great as people had hoped are are going to be suppressed. And while those things do have constituencies, uh, and it may not be possible to do this because of civil servants and other things that would happen. Um, So I don't want to be too dystopic here. I do think the Trump administration, to go back to what you were saying initially about calling the agricultural economists, for the same reason that they pick up the phone when you're like, hey, what's up with eggs? they it's not a big deal for the Trump administration to lift that gag order. Right. Whereas there are other agencies potentially, particularly over time, where what that agency does is much more directly related to the way that people will assess Donald Trump. It's also just worth saying on the economic data that like the conflict politically around the data is that the real data 
shows that the economy is doing pretty well. Right. Trump's fake data shows that the economy is in the toilet. <laughs> so if Trump wants to portray America as having been made great again by April, what he needs to do is stop lying right. and start citing the accurate data, which I feel like will generate a lot of consternation among like people who don't like Donald Trump to be like, oh, man, all he had to do to make America great again was stop lying so much. But it's going to be it would be, um, I would say, tactically unsavvy to simultaneously with that start messing with the data. Right. Like if you could just have it be like, aha, now everyone who said we have to like stand up for normality and facts and blah, 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 like we all now need to applaud Trump for coming back around to reality and admitting that America is okay, then it's just like win, win, win for everybody. Now, I do think there's a question, right? Suppose we tumble into recession 18 months from now. Is Trump going to try to pretend that that didn't happen? I don't know. I don't think we have ever had a president attempt anything along those kinds of lines. Typically, if anything, the rhetorical strategy that presidents afflicted by downturns tend to get is to say that, like, we are on the precipice of the greatest economic calamity that, like, has ever occurred in human history. And that's why Congress needs to immediately enact all of my legislative priorities. Um, That strategy doesn't work very well. So it's possible that just, like, pretending people aren't getting laid off would be better. But that also seems really bad. Like, I I remember the last recession. I mean, I do remember economic data about it, but it was, like, quite visible. Yeah. Right? That's true, (laughs) That people had lost their jobs and things. And I think it would have been really perverse if George W. Bush had been in, like, the summer of 2008 being like, it's fine. Nobody's (laughs) lost their job. The fundamentals of the economy are strong. Well, but somebody said that. That's John McCain, Right. But that was considered a huge gap. Yeah. No, I understand. When even though what McCain was saying was not lying. I think you probably couldn't screw with the unemployment rate, but but we'll see. I, I hope you're right. I think there's subtler things you can do. But I do think speaking of keeping the economy strong, yes. it's a good time to move to infrastructure, the greatest of all topics. It's great. Great. During the Obama administration, there was a lot of talk, I would say very vague talk from Democrats about how we ought to build a lot of infrastructure. This was because interest rates were very low. Uh, For much of the Obama years, the unemployment rate was very high. It seemed like it would be an opportune moment to build a lot of infrastructure. Um, Also, labor unions, building trades unions, uh, really like federally financed infrastructure projects because they typically come with what are called Davis-Bacon provisions, which mean basically that the contracts need to go to unionized firms. Um, And so there was a lot of we should do this, we should do this. And Republicans were like, no, 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 we're not going to do it. Um, Donald Trump on the campaign trail, very, very vaguely just sort of said, like, we should have a lot of infrastructure, um, which made people interested. It's popular. It, it polls well. He released a plan, which was seemingly at odds with his rhetoric, which was basically to do like tax credits for privately financed infrastructure programs. Uh, but he continued to talk a lot about infrastructure. He would just say, just to clarify this a little yeah. bit, he would say, we're going to spend a trillion dollars on infrastructure. Right. And then this plan came out. It's like, we're going to give like some tax credits that are way less than a trillion dollars. Yeah, like $150 billion in tax And then tax this stuff that people are already spending on infrastructure is going to be counted. And if you put all that together, it's like a trillion dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so as is often the case with Trump things, things seem to be proceeding on separate tracks. Like Steve Bannon gave an interview after the election where he was like – he phrased it in an odd way, but he was basically saying it's going to be like a New Deal style WPA. There's going to be roads and bridges and shipyards and blah, blah, blah. Um, in his inaugural address, Trump spoke about infrastructure. And and again, he, he spoke about infrastructure in the way that Democrats speak about infrastructure. Like he called out rail projects as a possible use of, of infrastructure money. Um, and he apparently has had his transition team get from the National Governors Association a kind of like every governor's wish list project sort of thing. So in parallel to this, Chuck Schumer, who has long been one of the biggest infrastructure proponents um, uh, in the Democratic caucus, came out with a let's take Trump literally 
I guess, rather than seriously. Or maybe, <laughs> I can never keep a track. Keep track, literally. So it's a bill to spend exactly $1 trillion on infrastructure. And then he slices it up into various parts. So there's like a water trench. I, I have this in front of me. $210 billion to repair crumbling roads and bridges. $110 billion to upgrade local water and sewer systems. $180 billion to replace and expand existing rail and bus. $75 billion to rebuild schools. $70 billion to modernize ports, airports, and waterways. $20 billion on high-speed broadband and underserved areas. $100 billion in new funding for energy infrastructure and grid modernization. $200 billion for a, quote, new vital infrastructure projects program. They'll be for the most critical national projects. And then some odds and ends. Yeah, so this is basically – a lot of money. Trump had started talking in broad terms the same way that Schumer had been talking, um, except Schumer's actual bill had been, I think, only about $400 billion. So now he's just scaled it up. And I think on Vox.com, this was characterized as calling Trump's bluff. I think uh, John Chait has an article in which he says it's the opposite <laughs> and that Trump is calling Democrats bluff. I don't really know. Um, so, th- so one thing that's out here is just like politics, right, is like – are Democrats basically that like infrastructure is popular. Republicans blocked infrastructure when Obama was president, but now we'll go along with infrastructure that Trump is president. And so therefore Republicans will get to say like, aha, Republicans get things done when really it was just that Republicans stopped yeah, obstructing. I have a basic question about this since I know less about infrastructure. When we talk about a trillion dollars infrastructure, like what is that? What is the scale we're talking here? Because that's just like a mind boggling Number like what does a trillion dollars in infrastructure buy you? Like how does that compare to other things we have done historically? Well, it's a lot of infrastructure. <laughs> Schumer is also using a very big definition of infrastructure. So, right, because you would want to do like a numerator denominator kind of thing. But like some of his money goes to broadband internet, which is like <laughs> – I can see the case for counting it. This actually came up in Wilbur Ross's confirmation hearings. But like unlike roads, right, broadband internet is like owned by cable companies. Um, We don't have like public data on like how much much broadband is there, right? It's not a government program in the same kind of way. I mean obviously you can look up some information about it, but it's like private proprietary, you know, information, what's what's in their spending plans. So this is a – a lot, right? It's a it's it's a very big bill, but it's also not directly comparable to anything that's been done. The normal legislative vehicle for this kind of thing, the main one, is the the surface transportation bill, um, or, or often called the highway bill, but it also includes like passenger rail projects. So this is huge compared to a surface transportation bill, but it also includes like an because the last one was like 300 yeah. billion, the transportation it, bill. Yeah. So this it, is three times. Exactly. That. Right. But it includes airports. Also, and, over what time period is a question I don't know the answer to here. I, it does not seem specified in the Schumer draft that, that he's come up with. Um, and anyway, so he's including marine infrastructure, all kinds of other things. I don't know as much actually about like the airplane. And there's a $200 billion fund in here, totally unspecified. It's just for vital projects. Yes. Um, uh, One thing that's interesting is there's a big increase in the um, Tiger Grants program, which is something the Obama administration started that I have seen uh, widely praised by Republicans and Democrats uh, alike and that Mike Grunwald likes to claim as one of the under the radar Mm -hmm. super successes of the Obama administration. In my opinion, this is a terrible terrible program that has basically what it does is that instead of giving money through the normal formula grant so that state governors can decide to waste it uh, on whatever white elephant projects they happen to like, it invites local governments to apply to let the secretary of transportation, uh, secretary of transportation fund, whatever white elephant projects he happens to like, which while the old formula grant process is like pretty bad, this is, I think, worse um, because as a governor, you at least have some interest in your project being worthwhile rather than pointless because you have a fixed amount of money to spend. So you kind of might as well make the best of it. Uh, But here, like you might not get any money at all, right? Because it's a discretionary grant. The grant is being made by an official who has like no accountability to the local people. So in practice, what we've gotten is all these streetcars everywhere because there's some kind of streetcar fad. Anyway, but people love this program. So uh, Elaine Chow said it was great at her hearings. Uh, Chuck Schumer wants to make it bigger. 
Um, but so, I don't know if I, I don't know if this means the money is going to go to like streetcars that have Trump written. So on can them. I distinguish yeah. maybe a couple of the philosophies that are in tension yes. here? One, we just don't know what Trump wants to do, will do. We don't know whether or not he will be able to get Congress to prioritize it. Mitch McConnell, whose wife is now transportation secretary or will be transportation yes. secretary, said infrastructure was not a major priority for Congress, yes. which is Congress for Congress speak for we are not doing this. Right. Fuck off. Um, we'll see if he's able to hold to that position or not. But basically what Wilbur Ross and Peter Navarro did in the Trump administration in the Trump proposal is create a tax cut based program that would incentivize both existing infrastructure, private infrastructure development and a little bit more of it. So the idea there is you're leveraging private money, but you're only leveraging it for projects that you can demonstrate have a return on capital. Yes. Um, I believe uh, our, our policy editor, Jim Tangerzy, told me it's a 10 percent return on capital unless he made the point. Um, if people have projects where they can make a 10 percent return, <laughs> they would just do them because it's actually hard in the current uh, financial environment to find a 10 percent return. But either way, what it means basically when you set the bar that high is you're really giving tax cuts for things people are going to do already. And you're only giving tax cuts for things that have a revenue stream attached to them. So something like a toll road would would work really well under here. But um, something like Flint water pipes would not because it's not obvious as a good revenue stream and getting residents of an extremely poor right. area of Michigan to pay for better water pipes. So what the Democrats have is a more traditional like let's have the government spend a lot of money. Um, we will have – whether it's Tiger or other decision-making structures, there might be – like the downside of that kind of thing is often – and I'm not using South Dakota specifically, but states like South Dakota often get more of this infrastructure money than you would expect just because they have – they're highly overrepresented in, in Congress and you need their votes. That happened in the stimulus among other things. But it is a way where you are able to fund projects that are important but are maybe not profitable for the private sector. Right. And so you can imagine – Either of these, in some context, proposals passing, but the kinds of infrastructure they would build, to Sarah's point, is really different, right? The kinds of infrastructure you would build out of the Trump plan, which is much less government money, is user fee-based infrastructure in pretty, I think, populated areas, although maybe not exclusively. And the kinds of infrastructure you would build under Schumer might have some of that too, but it would be a lot of stuff that is just – you know, it's just stuff government does and it doesn't, you know, you don't like pay like a little fee and there's probably not going to be a new tax levied on it. But it, it would be able to do some more like unsexy repair a road that people currently use or repair a bridge or repair a sewer pipe, um, stuff that actually does need to be done. Yeah. I also think a big tension in this debate is like what is the problem that people are trying to solve, right? Because – this originally sort of came up in the fiscal stimulus context, like just the unemployment rate is too high. Now it's been a little bit reframed as like even though the unemployment rate is low, we don't have enough like like manly man work for blue collar people. So that's to say you're trying to do a make work jobs program for people who have some kind of tenuous labor market connection or some kind of problem, right? That's like one objective. The other objective is the country has economically valuable infrastructure projects. So it would have like large externality benefits um, and then we need to implement them. Lead is a good example of something that meets both of those goals because the problem is often severe in economically distressed communities, but fixing it would be a big help to that community, but would also provide jobs mm -hmm. adjacent to the community. But with transportation programs, there's like an incredible tension between these things, right? If you're looking at rural Wisconsin, where good opportunities have just become a little scarce, not because it's depression conditions exactly, but like the economy has evolved. It's very cold there. People are tending to move away. People are maybe dropping out of the labor force. It would be nice to create more like activity there and, and more job opportunities, have more things going on. That's a fine idea. But that kind of place is like exactly where they don't need like a giant new highway. Right. right. Because nobody lives there. Um, now, where they could really use a giant new highway is probably near Austin because tons of people are moving to Texas. There's severe transportation burden. 
things and there's new things that need to be done. But there you're helping the most dynamic places, right? Or you could build – I mean it would be incredibly expensive but like another span across the San Francisco Bay to make it feasible to commute from more of the East Bay into Silicon Valley, right? That would be a project that would be incredibly expensive but also have a huge payoff. But it would be a local benefit to one of the wealthiest Mm -hmm. and most economically vibrant places in the country. Now, you might make a case for it, right? A kind of like strategic economic development case. Or like Washington, D.C. could use another metro tunnel through downtown. That would be very valuable. It would would open up more uh, suburban areas for, for denser residences. It would create a lot of job opportunities for people. But again, you'd be talking about literally the highest income metro area in the country. So it's like that's like the opposite of creating jobs in economically distressed areas. On the other hand, like Detroit really does not need a subway system. They have a lot of problems in Detroit, but they don't have a traffic jam problem because of all the other problems that they have. (laughs) When you try to do two things at once, it like sounds good at like 700 word length. Mm -hmm. Like we're going to kill two birds with one stone. But it tends to lead to really poor policy design because if you – pick a clear goal in mind, then you can really evaluate which steps will advance that goal. But if you insist on doing two goals at once, you tend to just like throw money around a little bit pointlessly. And that's what it seems to me is where the political sweet spot is, is to like waste a trillion dollars on things that are not that useful and that also don't help the people who are most in need. So do you see in the Democrats' proposal, like I'm looking at all these different um, things that they want to put money to, like is there a theory there of like, okay, we do this and let's say like this is a trillion over a decade because that's often how stuff is scored. Like a theory of what is different about our country afterwards, like looking through these programs, they feel very broad and vague to me and like not very like, oh, and like here's where we'll be in a decade. I'm curious like if you see – You know about this stuff more specifically than I do. Like if you see a theory of what actually changes in America at the end of this. I have a bit of an answer to this, I think. Yeah. I think the Democratic program, because it is trying to do something a bit different, um, specifically just create a poll in the debate against Trump, (laughs) that program is really focused on repair. And one of the hard things in infrastructure – and Matt probably knows a bit more about this than I do – but one of the hard things in infrastructure – is you have to constantly repair all your old infrastructure, which is a very high value thing to do, but it's not very sexy. Right. And so to the, the point Matt was making a couple of minutes ago about the political incentives of this kind of thing, like what Donald Trump, I think, would want to do, like putting aside both what his own staffers have done and what the Democrats have done is Donald Trump would enjoy every single city in America to have a beautiful bridge. And on the side of the bridge in giant letters is Trump. And the way I know this is that is how Donald Trump has spent his life just with buildings instead. And that usually is not the best thing to do. There's all this super unsexy fixing of sewers and fixing of cracked roads and refortifying bridges and all this stuff that just like nobody really wants to do. And, and some of it was done in the stimulus, but there's also a lot of focus on kind of big ticket projects. They're very excited about creating a smart grid. They're very excited about high-speed rail, which certainly in California has not worked the way anybody had hoped it would. Um, and whether it's a learning of that lesson or just, you know, Chuck Schumer had 72 hours to come up with a trillion dollars in infrastructure <laughs> spending. If you look at this, what I think is interesting about it is how focused it is on repair. And we actually do have a lot of repair that could be done. Uh, those are roads we know are being used that need to be used. And and so I think that would be actually a pretty positive thing. But it, it, to your point, it would not – you would not wake up on the other end of this because I think this is sort of what you're asking and look around the country and say like this looks totally different, right? This is a country of like Beijing-like airports and Japanese-like trains and, you know – Nordic style broadband everywhere. I think you get up and let's like a lot of the roads that were pretty shitty in areas that um, one reason the roads were shitty there is that people aren't there that often now are much better roads. Yeah. I mean, it would be interesting to see the like fine details, right? One difficulty with spending more federal money on uh, uh, repair upkeep is that You know, if you imagine, right, the state of whatever, Georgia, is already allocating its transportation dollars, not in the way that is necessarily like optimal for the people of Georgia, but that is optimal for Georgia's politicians. 
Um, if they get an infusion of new money to repair their roads, unless you write the grant very, very carefully, what they are going to do is reduce the amount of money that Georgia spends on repairing its roads, use the federal money for that instead, and take the money that's been freed up to either uh, build new things because the governor is into ribbon-cutting ceremonies or to cut taxes because the governor is into tax cuts. Um, this is known, like me members of Congress are not uh, morons. It's worth saying that Chuck Schumer's wife used to be uh, New York City Transportation Commissioner. So he actually has a you know, personal connection to a mm -hmm. community of expertise around this. So I, I'm sure that as if this were to become a thing, there would be some concern about that sort of issue. But again, if we were talking about the Obama administration, I'm sure they would have really long, painstaking meetings about, you know, make continuance of effort and things like that. Yeah. Um, the Trump administration, I feel like, would not make the technocratic soundness of their trillion dollar infrastructure plan like their number one concern about it. Um, and at the end of the day, Democrats would also not like blow it up over something technical like that. Uh, but it really would matter, right, in terms of like, what's this going to look like from the country? There's a big difference between taking a lot of infrastructure maintenance off the backs of state government and actually increasing the pace of maintenance that's there. The sort of text as it stands is a little bit ambiguous as to which of those things they're doing. But it's like the difference between, you know, you can expand Medicaid or you can just have the federal government pick up more of the tab for it. Um, and I think it's, it's a little unclear what the kind of like signal mechanism there is there. Now, the Trump administration, the transition at least, was getting a sort of project wish list from governors. Um, and that is, I would say, tilted more than you would want, ideally, toward like stations, like airports and train stations. Um, and that's the sort of classic like ribbon cutting bias that people have, right? Like if you open a new terminal of the Kansas City airport, the governor and the mayor, they can stand there and they can say, we built this and your name goes on a plaque and like it's it's all done. Whereas if it's like you improved the signals on a stretch of the Amtrak railroad that curves through New Jersey so that the train can go three miles per hour faster, that's not much of like a signature achievement, but it, it might be more useful than like a nicer train station. Um, and so – we would have to see. I mean, that's not policy. I think it's wise to ask governors, like, hey, if we gave you a bunch of random money, what would you do with it? Um, that doesn't mean it would be a good idea to actually give them a bunch of money. So I have another question, since I'm just going to ask you guys a question about this. So this made a lot more sense to me in an era of high unemployment when the theory was you could give a lot of people jobs, a lot of the types of jobs that you know were moving that we didn't have in the U.S., the skill sets could transfer over to infrastructure projects. How do you think about the theory of a massive infrastructure project in like an era of low unemployment? And I guess one of the things like I wonder about as I think this through is like where we get to the end of like trillion dollar infrastructure project and like what do all these people do who have like spent some amount of time like perfecting these skills, learning these skills, like where do those skills go in like the post massive infrastructure project economy? Uh I think there are two answers to this. So one is that you're you're right that I don't think you want to think about infrastructure as stimulus anymore, which was the the democratic argument for a long time. I don't think it's obvious that the country need if you if that was the only reason for it, I think you wouldn't do it at this point. But what we do have is extremely low interest rates still. So the the world is willing to finance a big infrastructure investment very very cheaply. Now, how they'll pay for it again, who fucking knows, but in theory, I think they're probably not going to pay for it. And if they just wanted to borrow, this would be a good time to borrow. And we do have these unmet infrastructure needs. I mean, it is a case. I don't know if it's literally a trillion dollars. People use a lot of bad data here. I've not seen anything I think is really good. People have a tendency to use um, these report cards put out by the civil Society of Civil Engineers, which like it's like a group of people whose like jobs it is to make infrastructure. And obviously, like what they would like to do is get more money. So I'm not 100 percent on, on, on that data. But People do seem to agree that we could spend a fair amount on infrastructure and we could get a return for it. And, and so to your point there about what happens to these people after, if we made wise infrastructure investments uh, 
infrastructure is a kind of spending that leads to more economic activity and not just more economic activity in that, you know, you have to sell coffee to people building bridges, but that you actually have like more productive metropolitan areas and that just creates more demand for job. And 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 it may not be the exact same people, but just overall improving the economy and improving, you know, the efficiency of America's ports and the speed with which we can, you know, transfer goods back and forth across the country. All that stuff does matter. It does create over time economic demand um, that would be good for these folks. Also, as much as a trillion dollars over 10 years sounds like a ton of money and it is a ton of money, it isn't so much money that it will be like the unemployment rate will go from whatever it is now, four point something mm-hmm. down to 2.7. It, it, it'll be a much more – it'll be more marginal I think still. Yeah. I mean I, I think it would be nice to actually like look at these things in different buckets, right? Like this broadband idea, I I don't know how sound the idea is exactly, but like that's a real like economic development agenda idea, right? I mean, if there are areas of the country where it is not cost effective for the private sector to create first class uh, internet connectivity, we have to decide as a country, right? Like ultimately, are those places just going to be backwaters forever? Like some mountainous areas just like didn't have anyone living in them in the agricultural era? Or do we want those communities to continue to be like vital and important aspects of 21st century America, in which case the rest of us are going to have to subsidize them through, for example, broadband internet, right? And that's a, I can sort of see both sides of that argument and is something that we should like take more seriously as a society and on all levels because like we have the post office is a big scheme to subsidize uh, living in rural communities um, but at the moment it's a big subsidy that also doesn't really help people because nobody cares about the mail and we should maybe do that for for very long-term reasons I do think it's short-term stimulus people people sometimes have it in their heads that the government could just like round up a bunch of unemployed people <laughs> and have them go build a bridge. And like you really can't. Like my my sister-in-law is an apprentice electrician in Southern California. And for one thing, if you are unemployed in Southern California and would like to get an apprenticeship through the electrician's union, like they have vacancies. Um, but it is a years-long process and it involves showing up to work at 4 a.m. And, and things like that. And like you might not want to do it. Um, but they can't just like conjure skilled building tradesmen out of thin air, right? Um, so if you want to attack the problem of uh, – working class labor force dropouts, which I think a lot of people do want to attack, it would be worth like thinking, I think, like a lot more seriously about like, where do those people live? What skills do they have? What would be a plausible way to get them a little bit more skill relatively fast so that they could go do something? And to to an extent, like throw out the window, the idea that what you're going to get them to do passes cost-benefit scrutiny because one of the benefits is going to be just like they have a job that they're showing up to that's good and and is skill building, which is why to me it would be healthy to like really separate more out like the question of like these are the country's long-term infrastructure needs and these are the country's short-term labor market needs. Both of those are difficult problems to solve and it's like really, really unlikely that you're going to solve them both, that like the places that need a smart grid are also the places that have lots of unemployed people who know how to build a smart grid that I mean, maybe right. Some divine coincidence. But that that seems that seems hard to me. Now, if you just want to create jobs for people, I think a great thing to do would be to give cities money to hire more bus drivers and also to buy more buses. Right. Because you can do that pretty fast. Every city in America right now has buses that sit idle for some of the day because they don't want to pay anybody to drive them. Um, it requires some skill to drive a bus. I could not do it. But it's also not like a years long training process. Uh, an average person can be taught to do that in a reasonably short span of time. We have factories that make buses. They could run more shifts. Uh, buses are made out of steel and other and probably not steel. Uh, they're, they're, they're made out of stuff. Um, just like we, we can do that. Right? Vibranium, I think it's it not, is. It's not like a super exciting like 
aha, we now have marginally more buses than we used to. But like if you're just trying to target the blue collar workforce, it's like we have the bureaucracies in place to buy buses, to hire bus drivers, to train them. Like we can do that and we probably We could put should. Trump on the side of all the new buses. Yeah, they could be Trump buses. And that would be very exciting. I mean Donald Trump's son could go start a bus manufacturing company <laughs> that then by coincidence wins the contract. You know, it, it could be great. I think we've solved this. We've um, made America great again. And all you had to do was listen to The Weeds, which you should also share with your friends, family, Facebook, Twitter, email, all that. Thank you to our producer, Afim Shapiro. Thank you to my colleagues, Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. Uh, the Weeds is a Vox.com and Panoply podcast, and it will be back next week. Next week.